Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and with me, of course, is Dr. Chris Garneau. Dr. Garneau, I, I have to ask you, because this is, this is a, a question that is looming in the, the hearts and minds of Alex Trebek fans everywhere. Who do you think is going to replace him on Jeopardy? Who is Austin Rogers? I don't know. So Austin, so <laughs> real quick, Aaron Rodgers is a quarterback of the Green Bay Packers who is currently uh, on a short-term, very short-term, uh, hosting uh, rotation. So I, here's who I, I, I was originally thinking. It, maybe it was a former contestant. I thought Ken Jennings for a while, but then he had to apologize for some tweets. Um, and they thought <laughs> that guy that made a bunch of money on there, he was real good, but I, apparently he doesn't, he's no, has no interest. My son and I have been watching old episodes of Jeopardy on Netflix. Cause they have a bunch and they're going away soon. And we found the guy who's like seventh all time in, in, in winnings. His name's Austin Rogers. He's from New York. He won 12 in a row, made about a half million. And he just has the biggest personality ever. So if it was going to be a former contestant, it would be him but they're trying out a bunch of different celebrities right now or personalities to see who it's going to be. So Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers is doing it right now. And I just want to give a quick update. My son and I watched today uh, to see how Aaron is doing. And let me say, Aaron is a better quarterback than he is a Jeopardy host. <laughs> it was painful, Kelly. It was bad. He's got no charisma. He's got, he's just like, okay. Potent potables for 600. You know, just like he's, he's trying to sound like a game show host and you can tell, I mean, he's been on TV, but not that way. You know what I mean? And so I know we were talking before ESPN is making a big deal out of this. You know, there are some sports guys and sports gals that can do fairly well. Like, you know, um, Charles Barkley does, he's, he's great personality wise. He's good. Not everybody is cut out. Aaron Rodgers is not cut out for this job. It's not going to be him. I know that for sure. Uh, Let's hope not. Yeah, this is bad. Next week is Anderson Cooper from CNN. I like him a lot. Um, so he can be, be good. good. Yep. And then Katie Couric is going to be on after that. Um, and then we're going to have uh, Sanjay Gupta uh, after that. So he'll be good. Some some potential good uh, hosts coming up to, to try it out. But uh, we were talking a little bit about this. You had a great idea. Go ahead and share it with us. LeVar Burton. There is really? a petition. There's a petition going around right now for LeVar Burton to become the next host of Jeopardy. And I think he should, I think he would be fantastic at it. If you're, if you grew up, you're Gen Xer reading Rainbow mm -hmm. or um, like one of the Star Treks. I, one of my, one of my good friends is a Trekkie and she'll, she'll kill me since I don't know which actual Star Trek that LeVar Burton was on but he was I don't fantastic either, but, yeah. <laughs> but but he would be the guy right like he's he's got that very even keeled voice he's awesome uh he would he would take the time to really learn how to pronounce things and yeah and you know that you know his language skills are awesome so yeah, I, I, I'm going to I'm my vote is LeVar Burton if anybody cares Here, here's why I think he'd be good too Alex Trebek, like a lot of people would say, well, maybe he didn't have that much personality. He did. It's just that he had that like very witty, dry humor and he was very quick witted. That's the thing. And it's, it's so hard. No one can really fill his shoes, but I think you have to find someone that's going to kind of like Jeopardy needs to have 
that kind of thing, whatever it is. And Aaron Rodgers, I'm not saying he's dumb. I'm just saying he doesn't have a quick wit but at all. Uh, there's nothing there that. <laughs> so, but anyways, I got to tell this story. So I'm, I'm online. So my son is a Zoomer. He's born in 2007. And um, so we, we've been watching Jeopardy on Netflix. And we've been, so we decided to watch it live now. Um, it's on every day at three o'clock. So he uh, he was like, all right, so we're going to watch Jeopardy today. And so he's like, hey, if my Zoom gets done early at 2.30, can we watch Jeopardy early? And I'm like, no, it's on live TV. It doesn't work that way. And like, you have to, like he's like, how do people live like that? <laughs> Sit around waiting for your show to be on. <laughs> Welcome to our world, kid. <laughs> yeah. And you never missed. I mean, if there was whatever it was that you were going to watch, you know, that was, you know, it was a, like a team or whatever it was I was going to watch as a kid. The first show I ever remember, and this kind of, this dates me a little bit. Uh, first show I ever remember really um, wanting to watch on my own, like that my parents didn't have to remind me about was The Simpsons. And I think it was every Sunday night at like eight o'clock or seven o'clock. And uh, I wanted to make sure I was home if I was out playing with friends or whatever. It's probably sixth grade, maybe something like that, um, that I was home to watch The Simpsons because that was like the big deal. Because and, and it, it was a bit, great writers, great writing on that show. Uh, Kelly, do you have any that you remember that you wanted to be home for? Oh, a lot. Uh, there was there was a lot. Of course, you know, I lived out in the country. Mm. So Antenna TV, uh, we had, uh, of course, Anadarko, uh, the cable didn't offer MTV, the cable ah. company itself, because apparently there's a bunch of dirty sinners like Madonna and Prince that were on there that were yep. too corrupt for the for the young minds of Anadarko. But um, but yeah, there was there were just I remember as a kid watching Land of the Lost. Of course, I remember oh, reading yeah. Rainbow, um, the electric company. That was always <laughs> that was always one of my my favorites. So but like after school, they had this like Pink Panther, like these really old Pink Panther cartoons that would come on oh. in the Beatles. Like those would be on like at like three o'clock, three thirty. Um and, you know, Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny hour would would be on at like four. So you come home from school and get to watch some cartoons. And that's pretty cool. You know, it, it, it's interesting having those those memories and they're bringing a lot of those shows back. One that they brought back on Hulu that we've been watching. I mean, my son's in junior high. So we've been watching Wonder Year, the Wonder Years with Fred Savage, uh, which it, oh, gets into the psychology of the middle schooler pretty well, actually, because it's all narrated as like one of the first shows where they did that. And so that was good. But it, here's the thing. Kids today don't know how good they got it. Because if you missed, if you somehow overslept or didn't get home in time that week, it was, it was lost. You don't know what happened. Like, especially if you couldn't program your VCR, right. Uh, or pre VCR, there was no way it just got lost in the ether and you don't know what happened that week. And, you know, and that's all there was to it. So, yeah. And everybody else did. Everybody yes. else knew what happened. Everybody's like, well, I was home. I don't know where you were. Like, like did you, you should have been it? somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, that, that was that was kind of a fun thing. So maybe if I see that petition for LeVar, uh, LeVar Burton, I'll definitely sign it. I think that that's a, a great idea. So anyways, best of luck to Jeopardy as they, you know, they may pursue their new host. Um, so we got a lot of talk, a uh, lot to talk about this week. Uh, with regard to things that are happening uh, statewide and nationally. And let's go ahead. I know we've been following this story for a few weeks. Let's go ahead and uh, talk about where we're at with um, laws that are being passed with regard to uh, athletics 
and specifically those that are excluding transgender folks from participating, tr transgender kids, let's be honest, these are children um, that are excluding children from sports uh, in many states, mostly red states across the country. And what's interesting is they're not being applied universally. So I haven't seen as many laws that are banning um, trans uh, men from participating in female sports, or excuse me, uh, trans, uh, tra the other way around. Uh, most of them are banning trans men from participating in female sports, not so much trans women from participating in all male sports. And so it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it brings up this question where these states are like, well, you know, if you're going through it, if, if, if you're, whether you're going through hormonal treatment or not, it's just it, like, there, there are differences that male and female physiologies have, and it puts women at a distinct disadvantage, but they're also applying this in sports that don't make a lot of sense that are actual individual sports in and of themselves, like golf and things like that. And so, uh, in some ways, I don't see this as necessarily protecting the children. To me, it's, it's, uh, virtue signaling, um, using legislative means, uh, but it's also like engaging in this culture war, kind of digging down in the culture war uh, that really started during the Trump era. That is kind of this holdover that we're seeing in states that are trying to keep that base invigorated. The ones who really, really plugged into those culture war moments or those culture war issues that keep them engaged. So that's my interpretation of what's going on. Um, but it's interesting seeing state by state these things happening every day. Well, and and it's going it's it's now going beyond that. I mean, there, there I do want to get back to the, the discrimination against children. But but right off the bat, what I want to know is why these states are so hell bent on uh, not offering any kind of health care options to trans to anybody in the transgendered community. That's that's just goes beyond me. Well, it's seen as non well, not seen. It is being it's it's elective pushed yes as an elective type of thing as a non-medical necessity necessary type thing and i would argue against that for a, a key reason for individuals who um feel like they are ready for some kind of it, it usually kicks in around adolescence ready for you know some kind of hormonal therapy or treatment um, it can be ex extremely beneficial in a lot of ways. So we know that the suicide rates, uh, this is changing, but is really high, like over, uh, over 30% for attempted within the transgender community in general. And we know that teenage years are turbulent as it is. Um, those are generally not good times for anybody and add to that gender dysphoria and other issues that come from, um, low levels of social acceptance. And what really worries me is that these are happening in states that have communities that are already going to be less than accepting. And then we add to that these barriers, these healthcare barriers that get in the way of being able to pursue types of um, healthcare, adequate healthcare for you know, individuals on this basis. Yet at the same time, keeps coming back to legislation that it was drawn up 20 years ago, showing things like Viagra um, or things for ED were deemed as medically necessary. Um, so clearly, lawmakers are not applying these um, kinds of medical necessities uh, evenly when we think about well, what is the actual ramifications of receiving healthcare or not receiving healthcare? So yeah, these are really important issues that come to bear. Let's talk about gender dysphoria 
and and what that is and i think that'll really tie in with what i want to know about this discrimination against children and and i think that being in the bible belt i think that there's a lot of people who are like well uh, this is a, a 10 year old child. How can a 10 year old child possibly understand uh, things like this? And so does that play into this gender dysphoria? And, and, and what is what is that? Because I, I do know that that affects the greatly affects the suicide rates. Mm-hmm. So gender dysphoria is not equally experienced or universally experienced by people who are transgender or non-binary, but it is something that's commonly experienced. So gender dysphoria is just a general sense that like you're, you're, you're displeased and this is not body dysmorphia. That's different. Um, but you're displeased with your body based off of gender presentation. And so it, the, it's, it's not just displeased, it has to cause distress. So it has to get to a level to where it's, it's hampering your or hindering your social interactions or your self-esteem or those kinds of things. Now, gender dysphoria in and of itself is a um, kind of form of depression anxiety that is distinctly related to a person's body. So we see gender dysphoria really kicking in around 11, 12, 13 years old, which is adolescence. So the time where... Um, not our primary, but our secondary sex characteristics. So primary sex characteristics are those that are used for the reproductive system. Secondary are more things like for men, they start developing wider shoulders, facial hair. Um, For women, they get more of an hourglass. That's where we start seeing differences in clothing. So little kids clothing, by the way, is universal. It's weird that we have boys and girls sections because little kids' bodies in terms of the clothes that they wear are indistinguishable. Like really they are. Jeans, um, there's no hips. I didn't know this. Like I, I, I've worn belts my whole life. I didn't realize that women wore belts as accessories um, <laughs> because you have hips. <laughs> I'm just like, yes. I need this belt. <laughs> it's a necessity. Uh, it's so, but, but that's an example of secondary sex characteristics. For men, it's kind of that, that straight waist that goes all the way down, right? So the, the point is when, when someone reaches adolescence, they're veering in one way or the other where those secondary characteristics start developing and coming in. And if mentally you don't conform to that, that's where that really starts to, to kind of bug you. And I've never experienced it myself, but the way it's been written about since I teach on sex and gender is sort of like waking up in someone else's body. So waking up in a body that's not yours. Now that I can understand, like I can understand waking up in a body that doesn't feel like it's mine would be very distressing. It would be very, dis- you know, there, it would cause a lot of anxiety. So when it comes to the decision to, I know you, you brought up the idea of age. So there is uh, ever growing bodies of literature that shows that for individuals who are transgender and they maintain that identity all the way into adulthood, that there is something cognitively going on with the brain. And you can see it in, in, in fMRI scans where, um, you know, so I'm, I'm going to get in, into some sticky uh, area here. There is kind of a male brain and kind of a female brain, kind of. So, and it's not an exact science. If you were a neurologist who looked at brains all day, you could say this is male and this is female. For the average person, it's not very easy. Um, Our brains are relatively the same. Men have brains that are roughly uh, five five to 10% larger, but we also have a big vacant hole in the middle of it that women don't have. I'm not joking. It's right right below the corpus callosum. We have this really big, empty spot 
that women don't have. Um, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, men have more gray, gray matter. Women have more white matter uh, in the prefrontal, in the frontal lobe. Um, and then the only other real distinction is that women do have a slightly larger hippocampus and that is memory storage. So, um, you know, women do tend to exhibit slightly better short-term memory than men do. Um, and that is proven scientifically. Um, so there are differences between male and female brains. Uh, I just want to be very clear that those have nothing to do with mathematic ability or the ability to read or any of those kinds of things. So intelligence is not part of it. Uh, size of brain does not dictate intelligence. People with small brains can have higher IQs and people with large brains. So all this is to say that there are differences in brains, but they're not meaningfully different. And, you know, except for the maybe memory, that might be something. But then again, men may not be... Um, may not be encouraged to remember things because they maybe they have a wife to tell them where something is. Um, so that, that also comes with environment. So what we know is that individuals who, let's say are AFAB assigned female at birth, but do, do identify as male. So trans men, um, fMRI scans will consistently show that their brains tend to tilt a little bit more towards male than female. Now they may be in kind of a non-binary state or, um, maybe kind of a, uh, an, a, a nondescript state where you can kind of pick out a little here and a little there. So it's sort of androgynous, but maybe leaning male a little bit. So the more research that we have on brains, the more we realize that individuals who are, are transgender, that's, that's their brain. That's just how it is. You can't change it. So you cannot change the brain. Um, we do not have a switch for that. We don't have a surgery for it. We don't have a pill for it. You can't do that. So the, the, the issue with body or excuse me, um, with gender dysphoria is you've got to get the brain and the body to align. How do you get them to align? Because that's, that's one of the root causes. So to get the body to align what, for most transgender people, it's social transitioning. And that's the easiest part. It's a change of name. It's a change of clothing, a change of presentation. And a lot of times that just relieves a lot of that anxiety in some ways. Um, it doesn't change your body, but it does kind of make, make it so that you can feel more comfortable being who you are and who you want to be. Um, the next step would be hormone therapy. That's not nearly as common, but it can happen. Um, most physicians would not recommend doing it up until a certain age and only until a child has consistently um, demonstrated that that's what they want to do. Children generally only get approved for hormone blockers, not hormone replacement. So what a hormone blocker would do is it limits the amount like men and women both have estrogen and testosterone, but it will limit the amount that is allowed to um, be introduced. And what that does is it kind of stops or slows down development until someone is um, of an age to where they can decide to do that for themselves as an adult. Um, when we start talking about surgery, that is rare, so very rare. And it's usually, um, it's more often trans women that get surgeries than trans men, because surgically it's much more easier to do that. So there's the, the basic FAQs on, on transitioning. So what about 10 year olds that are, you know, eight, nine, five, five year olds that, that have this kind of, um, this kind of thought? Well, um, what most psychologists say is let the kid lead the way. 
you don't have to do anything drastic. You don't have to, you know, if, if you want to try a name change at home, that's a great way to try it out for a week or two. And the kid will let you know if they like it or not can try different pronouns for a week or two and see if the kid likes it. And by introducing it at the home first, you get some experience for the family to try out something new, but also for the individual to see if does that reduce the amount of, you know, dis disjuncture that they feel between the, the, the mind and the body. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, psychologists do caution parents not to jump too far too fast. And one of the reasons they're finding is that, um, for example, a lot of, um, a lot of a, uh, AMAB assigned male at birth, um, non-binary people or women who, um, decide that they want to become, um, trans women or the other way around. Um, if you are AFAB assigned female at birth, it it's actually, there's some research showing that, uh, a decent percentage of those kids are actually confusing the gender identity with sexual orientation because those two systems in the brain work together. So maybe that you thought you were going to be a trans boy or a trans man, but really you were a lesbian. And, um, that, that is more apparent later on. So, you know, it really needs to be very consistent before you do the hormone blockers. And most doctors, by the way, they know this, those that work, you know, work at these systems, they know that, um, but you know, there's the, the research is coming out a little bit more all the time. And it also says that our sexual orientation or gender identity, all that stuff is interwoven. It's a complex system. Um, but we live in a time where people are allowed to think differently or identify differently or, you know, whatever it is and what a great time to be alive. And I think for a lot of folks who see this as a challenge to the fundamental state of what we are as a country, it's very hard to process that. I will tell you this, I got kids who are 13 and 10 in, uh, in middle school and elementary school and older kid in college, they're, they don't have these issues. They just don't. It's not, they, they know friends who are identifying as bisexual and identifying as non-binary and whatever, and they could really care less. It's the parents that are freaked out. It's not the kids. The kids can deal with it. Like, so Here's the other thing about gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria isn't just a pure biological feeling. Yes, it can come from a disjuncture between the brain and the body, but it's a disjuncture that often results from environmental pressures, such as, no, you're a girl, you must wear a dress. Uh, you're a boy, you must wear a suit to church. Um, you No, we're not gonna call you that name. No, you can't do that. You can't play with that. You have to play with this. Those kinds of things, it, it, we know that when people are in more accepting families, accepting communities, the levels of gender dysphoria that they experience are far lower. Um, and so that's also a really important part for letting kids develop naturally and figure out what they want is if they're not boxed into, you know, uh, just one way of being, one way of, of, of behaving, because then they can explore it and they can decide, yeah, I kind of want to identify this way. And then maybe later they're like, no, I really don't. Um, and so at least they have the freedom to, to figure that out. And, you know, it, it, most medical professionals and psychologists especially understand that these, uh, these things are fluid, they can change over time. And so you just kind of let the kid figure it out in a way that is, you know, supportive for them. And, you know, by the time they're an adult, maybe they have more of it figured out, but here's the other thing, Kelly, I'm 42 and I don't have all my life figured out either. So, you know what, I don't think we should have to expect kids to, you know, especially at that age. So, um, but that, that, that's kind of the rundown on, on how gender dysphoria works. And it, it's something that, that we are definitely concerned about, but, um, when it comes to medical treatment, it is a real problem. And one of the biggest, uh, remedies that we have is, an accepting, 
family system, community system that is accepting, that allows for different kinds of expression. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about this. Um, okay, so I did see this documentary in, um, I think it's in Hulu, um, because that's where that's where HBO is. It's not on Dish, so I, I have to see John mm -hmm. Oliver. And so, but but it's the uh, it's the one about Q. And the one it's it's actually documented the QAnon movement. And you said you watched part of it. I got I got through the first half of it. Um, so it's called Q into the storm. I actually I got HBO for a month. They give you a month free. I have it on my calendar when to cancel. Um, it's like 15 bucks. I'm not going to do that. So anyway, um, <laughs> but I really wanted to watch this. And so, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So there is a documentary filmmaker um, not familiar with his work, but he he was just kind of interested in Q because it seemed like a meta conspiracy theory, like it tied in all different kinds of things like the JFK assassination, like all the way back 9-11, like it's all part of this like very weird interwoven thing. So he basically goes on, goes down these rabbit trails and, and is looking for different um ways of explaining what the movement means, who's involved, how it all works. And so the first half really, I find fascinating is all about media, freedom of speech and the internet. And so it basically shows how there were two, you know, the, the, the two um, formats that people might be familiar with. One I'm more familiar with is Reddit. So Reddit um, allows for, you know, anybody to do whatever they want. They don't have a lot of edited content. They don't have a lot of whatever, but you're not anonymous. So the, the deal is anybody can see who you are. You have to register to use Reddit, but then they had this thing called 4chan that came out and 4chan had, you were anonymous, but there was a lot of moderation going on. So anybody could post anything they want, but things would get pulled down frequently. And so there were some folks or one guy who came up with the idea of 8chan. So 8chan is the best of both worlds in his mind. It is completely anonymous and it's the Wild West. You can do whatever you want. There is no limitation. And it resulted, as you can imagine, in the most god-awful stuff you can think of, like racist, sexist, homophobic, just disgustingly, it, you know, kind of the things that we've heard about on Parler, but I think Parler is even a little more uh, moderated. But 8chan basically allowed these subgroups of neo-Nazis to arise, of, um, and then QAnon, QAnon followers to arise, and it gave them a place to spread conspiracy theories, but it also allowed them to organize and to be able to communicate. We know people were communicating on Parler um, and through other social media, but they were also communicating through 8chan. And, and what it's getting, it, I'm halfway through right now, and they're getting into this philosophical debate right now on, you know, they're going to get to the storming of the Capitol. They're going to get there. But on what are the limits of free speech, which is a discussion we've been having for a long time. And it's interesting, you work in radio, I used to work in radio, I was under, I, I had to work under the FCC. Um, have your license? But, yeah, yeah, And yeah. have your license put up at the station? Yeah, In case exactly. they came in, in case the stormtroopers <laughs> from the FCC came in? Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's, it it, 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 here's a question, like, if you're the platform that allows the speech how much responsibility do you bear? Does the First Amendment cover these kinds of things? And I think we all love the idea of free speech and being able to get our ideas out there. Um, but they're really asking this question, 
what are the consequences when you don't have any moderation, when you don't have anybody there to kind of watch over things? And that's kind of where we're getting with QAnon, really the conspiracies really fed into people. You know, they talked about Pizzagate was at the beginning of, of QAnon. And that was this idea that Hillary Clinton and some others were running um, a child trafficking thing out of a pizza place in New York. A guy read about this on 4chan, ended up going in with a gun and he was going to free the, the, the people who were being trafficked, you know, truly believing that this was happening. But then it also gets into how Infowars played into it, Alex Jones, how all the, you know, it, it was given legitimacy through fringe media that seemed legitimate. And the part of it that's really interesting is they really preyed on baby boomers who were not as savvy with the technology and they made it easy for them to participate. And this is where Facebook comes in because Facebook is so user-friendly. It was very easy for people of older generations to start getting involved in this stuff. And it was very easy to push out quote unquote fake news and disinformation to them. And so that also comes up in free speech. How free are you to... Uh, pass off stories that are completely untrue as if they are true. And, and so, yeah, it, it's fascinating, but QAnon really starts at this, this place where we have these conversations about what is free speech and what does the first amendment actually cover? That's, that's really interesting. And you know what I say and what, what my platform and the rules here are no hate speech. We'll, right. we'll say what we want, but just no hate speech. And I think that that pretty much allows us to say whatever we want. And that's, you know, if it gets to be too much, then I'll pull it if, if, if need be, you know, but I want to take our last couple of minutes and, and talk about something that you said before we came on the air. And that was the, um, the notion of consequence culture. Let's talk about this craziness. That's that Mitch McConnell is like corporations stay out of, stay out of politics, but but not your donations, like keep donating to us. And then all these CEOs got together on zoom and was like, we're not donating to these guys. And so is that really what the consequence culture is based on? Well, I think it's it's a it's a clever way of rebranding cancel culture in a way that I think is more accurate, because what it says is, yes, you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want, but there will be a consequence for doing that. Um, And we're seeing that play out between politics and large corporations all the time. Uh, And it's been happening a lot recently where we see corporations decide that they're going to take a different stand. They're going to um, reorient themselves. They're going to try to do something different. And what's interesting is the corporations themselves that are getting ahead of the curve. I see far less of the, we found out such and such corporation does this. Let's stop buying their stuff. It's more, they get ahead of it, which I think I'll be honest. I think consumers appreciate that. I think consumers they like that. I, I, I'm glad the Dr. Seuss family decided for themselves that they weren't going to carry those books anymore. I'm still going to read Dr. Seuss books. I'm not going to stop because they had these books that, you know, like that's not, that's not the issue. It's a consequence culture. It's if you don't atone for the things that you have to atone for, if you do, you're likely going to lose support and that's capitalism. That's a free market. That's how it works. So Georgia is experiencing that right now. Georgia is reeling because they went blue for the first time in a very long time in the 2020 election, not to mention they had two Senate losses 
that gave Democrats control of the presidency, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. In the state of Georgia, they're having, I've learned this term since I moved to Oklahoma, they're having a come to Jesus moment um, <laughs> where the Republican Party has to figure out what to do. So what do they do? They double down on the strategy they always do, which is let's restrict who gets to vote. And you, we've seen a slew of legislation flying out of the state legislature uh, in the state of Georgia that is limiting the ability for poor and people of color to vote uh, within the state. So what's the consequence of that? Well, the biggest one that we've seen so far is that Major League Baseball was scheduled to have the All-Star Game in Atlanta. That is a format that brings in a ton of money. It brings a lot of money in. And because of that, because they decided to move it out, the state of Georgia has lost millions of dollars of revenue that they would have had otherwise. But Georgia is interesting because they have actually, they have a lot of filming that takes place there. The Walking Dead was completely filmed in Georgia because they have laws that make it profitable for um, production companies to come to Georgia. A lot of those production companies are basically holding them hostage right now saying, look, we, yeah, we love that you give us a tax break, but that's not what's important to us. We don't like that you're suppressing minority votes in the state of Georgia. So that's consequence culture. That is, yeah, you can pass these laws, but cor these corporations, these big money people, they are not beholden to you. They can go wherever they like. And this is, and, and they're feeling it. They're like, well, how can, how can we discriminate against people and not lose money? <laughs> it's just like, you may have to play by the rules of the game, um, you know, to, to throw a weird pun out there at the time, but that is exactly what's going on. Um, and, and, and it's not just happening in Georgia. I saw the, uh, what was it, college? World Series is thinking about Nebraska. It's always been there thinking about, are we going to keep it in Omaha or do we want to move? So the NCAA is thinking about it. And I, I think for American sports is kind of where you, that, it, that hurts especially hard just because of the culture we have around it. So um, my thoughts on that is I want to keep up with that story uh, to see if anything's going to change or if they're going to double down, because, you know, it's, if you're going to hurt voters, then you're going to get hurt in the pocketbook as well. So yeah, those are fascinating stories to watch. Yeah. And poor Coca-Cola, like poor Coca-Cola, like, oh, no, the Republicans are going to boycott Coca-Cola again, you know, and it's I, I, I don't understand it. And the really funny thing is the Republicans and Mitch McConnell himself was OK with Citizens United and all of this dark mm -hmm. money and politics. But now it's just like, well, I'm not talking about political donations. I'm just talking about give us your money and shut your yapper. Exactly. Do what you want. And here's the, here's, here's what comes of that. So now we're going to have what uh, Republicans drink Pepsi and Democrats drink Coke and um, Republicans <laughs> can watch hockey field hockey, I guess is about it. Anymore. Dem Democrats get the rest of the, the sports. You know what I mean? Like, are we actually, you know, doing that? And, and that, I, I think that's what's happening is like, instead of progressing, which is progress, uh, moving along as society, we're starting to like camp out and stake out, you know, the, the, the things, but here's the thing. And, and this is something that, that Republicans are going to have to deal with Pepsi. If, if they're going to be doing things like voter suppression and whatnot, they don't want them either. Like there is nothing salvageable about the idea of, of undemocratic processes that's going to appeal to any major brand right now, because no, I can't think of any major brands that want to be associated with that. So I think that's, that is a problematic strategy that may not pay off in the end. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, of course, with Dr. Chris Garneau. Make sure if you missed this conversation or any of our past episodes, you catch up with those wherever you get your podcasts. We're Indigenous, we're independent, and we're Talk Jive Media. Have a great day, everyone.